This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Raymond Chandler once wrote, Down these mean streets a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. He is the hero. He is everything. He must be a complete man and a common man and yet an unusual man. He must be, to use a rather weathered phrase, a man of honor, by instinct, by inevitability, without thought of it, and certainly without saying it. He must be the best man in his world, and a good enough man for any world. The story is this man's adventure in search of a hidden truth, and it would be no adventure if it did not happen to a man fit for adventure. If there were enough like him, the world would be a very safe place to live in without becoming too dull to be worth living in. Or as Doc might put it, who, me? So, earlier this year, I caught up with the one novel of today's guest that I hadn't read yet. The Song Is You. The story of a flippant, careless, Tinseltown PR man in the early 1950s who becomes driven to solve the disappearance of a young Hollywood starlet with whom he crossed paths sometime before. And in doing so, he uncovers layer after layer of extraordinary darkness as he becomes more and more compelled, despite his own best interests, which are usually the only thing he serves, to commit one act of goodness. Even if he cannot quite quantify why he is doing this and would probably never actually use this word, it is as if he is like a desperate moth to the flame of redemption itself. He is not a hero, but something in him is compelled to a kind of tarnished heroism. And this book ripped my goddamn heart out and is by far one of my favorite reads of the past decade and this entire century. Okay, so I'm going to let everyone in on a little secret. This podcast began with the idea that it would be a celebration of the woefully underrated 2014 neo-noir that we all know and love advice. And you know, it, it still very, very, very much is. But along the way, it quickly metamorphosed also into something else. This really cool excuse for me to corral my heroes into rambling, white album length, long form talks with me about all things noir, crime, Los Angeles, and having to do with heroism, romance, memory, longing, fate, and redemption. And today's episode is no different. Because talking today to me is one of my genuine all-time capital H heroes. If you ever stop to think to yourself, gosh, I am, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. I want you to take a look at what this guest's life has been like over the past 15 or so years. She's the author of the absolutely fucking essential nonfiction work, The Street Was Mine, White Masculinity and Urban Space and Hard-Boiled Fiction and Film Noir, which is a really, really hard title to say as quickly as I just did. (laughs) She's an Edgar Award-winning writer of nearly 10 novels in just as many years, 
books cats cradling between hard-boiled crime fiction and the mysteriousness and darkness of female coming-of-age stories and losing one's innocence and the dark ritualism therein. She's the co-author of the wonderful crime comic Normandy Gold. As an editor, she's published an anthology of female noir. Her writing has also appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Wall Street Journal, The Los Angeles Times Magazine, The Believer, The Los Angeles Review of Books, and The Criterion Collection. Elsewhere, she was a staff writer on HBO's golden age of porn drama, The Deuce, and adapted her own novel, Dare Me, into the incredible TV series of the same name that plunged deep into some tar black psychology of the world of American cheerleading. All of which leaves me reeling in admiration and envy and hero worship, and probably leaves her wondering what the hell she's doing on a Sunday afternoon talking to some nerd about inherent vice. But here, a heroism, that's, that's a good Sesame Street word of the day for us today, because today's sequence, which has slowly become my favorite moment in one of my favorite films, concerns nothing less than that very word. Like so much of this film's remainder, the sequence is a hazy, lazy, and heavy-lidded interrogation of an idea, of a feeling, and that feeling today is heroism the willingness to do one good thing, no matter what, to be catalyzed by the darkness, both from the exterior world and your own heart into doing something of worth, no matter how small. And I can think of no other person I'd rather discuss that moment, that scene with, other than today's guest, one of my all time favorite writers of crime fiction and just one of my favorite writers in general, Megan Abbott, thanks for coming on today. Oh, geez, what an intro, man. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, I got to get an oxygen tank after that, so you vamp for me, just just for a couple of minutes, please, and thank you. That's just, no, that's, I, I am a bask in the glow of such kindnesses, but to me, one of the joys of operating in crime and noir has been finding uh, people like you, like, there were, there were so many of us, and it feels like we've all started to slowly find each other through the books and movies we love and our fascination with this particular, the sort of mysteries of, of noir, of, you know, the love, what you said, desire, longing, uh, a sense of fallenness. Um, and yes, those moments of grace as a, as a seriously lapsed Catholic, I always, always <laughs> Same. Uh, yeah, there we go. Um, so I just, uh, this, you know, as I told you, had listened to some episodes and have a, you know, long time love of PTA. So this was a no brainer for me to want to come on. Well, that's a great place to start, actually, because before we dive into the scene in specific, or the soft boiled noir of Inherent Vice in general, uh, or simply all things film more. Let's start with those three little letters, P-T-A, and where he falls in your pantheon of modern filmmakers. Because from talking to you, I know you're just a teeny tiny bit of a fan. Yeah, yes. I mean, really, I suppose, I mean, I've always been a Scorsese person, but, uh, you know, among his generation and everything after, PTA is it for me and was since I believe that I saw Boogie Nights before Heart Eight, but saw them in quick succession. But like going back then and I just never had a 
director in my, living in my lifetime, you know, who so challenged and fascinated and haunted me and seemed to know all my, all my sort of secrets, the, you know, had the energy and, and he's, you know, I suppose we're around the same age. So seeing his, him develop both as a filmmaker, but as a thinker sort of in line with, with me, if I may be so, but just cause we're the same age, uh, has been just such, sheer delight and and then too to have him because he's venturing into you know boogie nights though i later worked on the deuce porn was not a world i had that much you know creative familiarity you know we have a little bit of familiarity with it but um <laughs> but like as he started to make these other movies and you know things like there will be blood and the master like all these sort of his fascinations and new interests, um, and leading up to Phantom Thread, which is sort of you know a great female noir story. They just all the overlap then sort of intensified everything for me. And of course, Inherent Vice because I'm a Chandler diehard and have like you know yeah and all the all the pieces. So it's just felt like weirdly this. Not only do I love his movies and love his sensibility, but I've sort of seduced myself into thinking there's something synchronous <laughs> in it. Well, I think that some of that comes from I think some of the magic of his work and his films is that especially post Boogie Nights, certainly post Magnolia, he consistently gives us not the movies we expect or want. And this is such, this is such a pretentious thing to say. Yeah, I remember when um, uh, Dylan famously went electric and the critics that, that appreciated that said he didn't get, he was the first time an, uh, a creative refused to give the audience what they wanted. He gave us what we needed which is a really hammy line, but it's a good one. And I think it, it applies somewhat to his, definitely his punch drunk onward work in that you go to a PTA movie now thinking it's gonna be this thing, thinking it's gonna be this one thing. It's gonna be a takedown of American capitalism and oil, or it's gonna be a middle finger to Scientology, or it's gonna be this very frilly, frou-frou, merchant ivory love story uh, set in, 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 in the UK. And it is never those things. It is never those things. And yet it always turns out in retrospect, maybe it takes a single viewing, maybe it takes two years worth of trying to, to rewatch or a film that you, you avoid for three years because you hated it that first time. And then it gets in your head, you catch it on TV, and all of a sudden it is exactly the film you wanted him to make. It is, actually, it is the film you wanted to see and you never, you never knew it. Uh, I, I definitely felt that, especially with something like Phantom Thread, which I sat down at the premiere, the LA premiere for that going, oh boy, I love PTA, but these trailers, I'm just not seeing anything in this that's... Bad poster. <laughs> oh God, those posters, oh God, those posters, those those Academy Award uh, uh, bait, those Oscar bait posters. And I sat down just kind of sighing the way that uh, Reynolds Woodcock sighs in that meme. Uh, <laughs> what have I gotten into here? Uh, and even as I was watching a film, like say Phantom Thread, I was thinking, oh wow, this is beautiful. The Johnny Greenwood score is amazing. The performances are immaculate to sublime. It's, 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 the aesthetic is gorgeous. And I have no idea what this is. I don't know why I'm watching it. I don't know why he spent two years making it. And then of course you get to the cabin sequence and uh, the long pour of the drink. 
and that 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 prolonged look between and i'm like oh my it's this this as you said it's a it's a female noir about marriage it's a it, it, it that's ex, it's that's that's what this is holy shit and that was kind of what for me watching a pta movie is like in microcosm for me it it that journey took place over the the, the two hour running time sometimes it takes two years sometimes yeah. it takes five but that's i think the magic of what he does is he consistently refuses to make the movie you are sure that he is making and instead gives you something that is far more messy and human and sad and in in despite that messiness and that uh somewhat abstractness seems to be evoking and emoting all of the things that you feel but are not able to quite say yourself even though the film itself is only kind of mumbling it out of the corner of its own mouth does that make does that make sense no that this is making me think of the, my experience seeing the master for the first time which oh. i saw here the enormous and now gone um uh theater i saw it on the the super wide uh screen it was and it was so overwhelming and the first hour is so different than the second hour and plus you know like it pivots in a in a different way than mm -hmm. well, they all, all, a lot of them do a hard hard pivot and so you think you're watching one movie and then and i think there's something about that that yanking you that then can push you out out for a while and then you have yeah. to come back and or it can tug you close and in the master i walked out and i had no idea how i felt about it and then i watched i went to see it again a couple months later and it was like all shimmered into place and everything <laughs> like it, like i've seen it so many times since it just uh they work on you his movies i feel like they work on you as the viewer um which i think touches on what you're talking about there and weirdly like you're seeing them and then they're seeing you <laughs> and they're seeing things about you you didn't know his mood the the relationship between audience and his films feels like the relationship between usually the two primary characters in his films there's that weird dialectical magic yeah. which also also bakes into the structure because if especially you know a film like the master feels like you're watching freddie quell stare across a table at master for the whole film the film itself feels structured like where one half of the film is a character staring at the other and they are reacting against each other yeah. and so it's so jarring and confusing and weird and i had the same experience with the master where i walked out of that going so i've just seen an american classic but i have no idea what that was about i, I don't understand it do people yeah. really get phone calls in theaters in the 1950s? Was that a thing? Because I was so dazed, <laughs> I didn't realize that was a dream. I'm like, wow, I, I guess they did that back then. I guess you could, you could get a call. Uh, not, and then it was like, like you, the second time it gelled for me. When it gelled for me, I was like, oh, well, this is a love story. This isn't like a, this isn't like a Scientology takedown. This, is, this yeah. is just about how badly you can want someone who's wrong for you and vice versa and just not get it right, which is, I think, something that makes weirdly inherent vice and the master almost as perfect a pta double feature as you could get and speaking of inherent vice a movie that we might talk about once or twice more today uh how do you view the times in which noir has seeped into his filmography specifically there was sydney or heartache i'm going to be pretentious and call it sydney uh yeah. and, and in this film but, but how do you feel about as someone who has seen probably more films noir than all of the other guests on this show combined, how do you view his prisming of that into his filmography? Boy, it's, cause it's not, I mean, essential sensibility. I mean, real true 
noir, original noir, noir from the 40s is is so such a European sensibility. It's so much driven by the expats coming to Hollywood and having this sort of outsider dark view of of America. Um, and so, and that's not PTA at all. But I think, uh, you know, I think for PTA, so much of what he's looking for with the strands of noir he uses, he's a much more human direct, he's very much more interested in people's connections and failures yeah. to connect. And that noir works so great with that because it is so much about feeling alienated and, and um, remote and, uh, and all the systems around us are falling apart and who do we trust and, and that longing to, to, you know, you're in a fallen world and that longing for a world where, you know, like Philip Marlowe is always looking for one person in the book he can have a conversation <laughs> with and trust, you know? And I feel like that's, that sort of, that longing is something that from, that PTA comes at from another side. He's really interested in that. He's obviously very interested in fathers and sons and their failure to, to connect and uh, and sort of systems and you know the way that people create families create families because they it's a way to ward off the chaos in exactly. their heads, you know. Now again, you you have such a mind for noir. You know, I think you know most of the tricks and the diversions and digressions and surprise left surprise left hooks that the genre has, or that and not just proper noir but the films inspired by noir that because again you know I don't think you could really call something like Sydney a neo-noir but it is it's informed by noir it's having a conversation with it and it's it's doing a lot of especially as his earlier films did it's doing a lot of heavy borrowing and like cribbing notes and things like that you you've seen a million mystery films in which the mystery is the point and you've seen a million others in which the mystery was never the point at all and this film kind of seemed and, and Hera Vice seems to kind of fall somewhere a little bit in the middle of that uh, so as someone who is so adept at kind of traipsing all of these genre tripwires, what was your first viewing of Inherent Vice like? Uh, I'm going to guess it was maybe a little less fraught and confused and complicated than some others have had. Even uh, the great uh, the great Matt Zoller cites, the great critic, he yeah. was on a few weeks ago and he's like, oh, I, I'm like you. I'm definitely one of those people. I loved it the first time I saw it. I still don't know what it was about. And as of today, I don't know what it's about, but Travis, I loved it. And I'm curious, were you one of those people that, that loved it off the bat? And if so, did you, did you have your arms around it or is it one of those that took repeat uh, visits? It did. It, I saw a screening of it um, uh, before it came out, and I should preface this by saying that I had not read the book. Um, but I'm a big crying a lot. 40, 49, you know, that's lightweight pension, but <laughs> there is no, let's, let's, let's talk about that. There <laughs> is no such thing quotes are on as <laughs> lightweight pension. He wrote the, the liner notes for a nineties alt rock band called Lotion. And even those are more, more complex than most novels I read on a weekly basis. There is no lightweight Tommy P. There's just, there's True. not. But he, that was really an important book for me in thinking about noir because, of course, Pynchon knows everything about, about noir and he's playing with it so much 
in that book and it's very dear to me because of course it's a female detective uh and it also has so much of the california tropes of noir you yeah. know sort of cults and mysterious and secret societies and big big money and um and so i was um in many so that was the lens one of the lenses i was bringing into this i really could i was very surprised that he was going to adapt pynchon because pynchon um is a sort of colder writer you yes know? and pta is a hot 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 um <laughs> personality so yeah. i i and then the other lens i brought to it and then i couldn't stop thinking about it through the whole movie was Altman's The Long Goodbye, which is obviously in its in its DNA too. Uh, um, I'm sure that's come up here before. Oh, we've uh, mentioned it. Yeah, we've yeah, yeah. It so, so I like had this like, and then of course also thinking about Chandler's original novel, The Long Goodbye. So I had all these sort of. It was almost over, you know, like coming into it like this is gonna be a math problem We're, like how, <laughs> how is he, he going to assemble these and i walked out and i really liked it but i i was not i hadn't reckoned with it yet there were parts that puzzled me i could not follow the plot at all i'll admit it i mean I oh wow that i was surprised i figured you were going to come in like doc with his little chart on the wall and you'd be like oh god yeah avian no. russia koi harlingen i got that from the jump I mean, yeah i can't follow the plot of a lot of the Chandler novels. So, <laughs> well, yeah, Jesus. You, yeah. you don't really read those for plot, nor do you watch Inherent Vice, yeah. I believe, for this, for the, you know, like, you can watch it many ways that none of which may relate to the actual, <laughs> this is what's happening. So then, but when I, my good friend Bill Boyle was on your podcast and we were talking about it and he had just watched, I think twice in two days, he's seen it many times. So I thought I'm gonna rewatch it again. So about a month ago, I rewatched it and I was really very affected by it. And then this week, <laughs> I thought I better watch it again um, for us to talk. And then this time it was like, it was like epiphany because first of all, I could follow the plot for these for the first hour and 10 minutes. <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> um, I really, uh, um, but more importantly, I, it just sort of started to shake me emotionally in the way that PTA movies ultimately always do. I felt so, I mean, Joaquin Phoenix always can pluck at my heartstrings even when he's playing monstrous people. Um, but here, I was so moved by his sort of version of the noir hero. I was so affected by, um, and maybe seeing it now in the chaos we're in, like the loss of any structures or meaning or the dislocation we all feel, was felt very sharp to me um this sense of you know what happened um was very exactly very intense for me so it was i'm so glad that i uh returned to it because it was the one i knew i would go back to it but uh i'm so glad that that i did because it, it was just uh now it's like i don't even know where to rank in the p i can't even do pta ranking so i won't but this is it was very 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 gratifying rankings of a director like pta they're pointless i i i saw someone on twitter once say something to the effect of 
it's like taking the eight best human beings on earth and trying to to put them in order of bestness. It's like, what's the point? They're the eight best. Can we just have them and let them be our best? Can we just let them be our best? And, you know, it's interesting that, uh, you know, you're you're talking about um, how much, how different the film feels now watching it in 2020. And that is, that has definitely been a growing thread on these episodes, especially post-March is how many times we've digressed on this show to go, oh, wow, this is kind of a horror movie now. This feels so much like a horror movie because again, to, it's a, about pulling on this thread of something and I'm not gonna make a phantom thread pun, I promise, but pulling on it and going, how far back does this go? How Can we trace the lineage of this darkness? And, and, and when you do and you start to realize all of the things that have kind of conspired to bring us to this horrible place in which there is a really evil force coming from a golden tower in, in this story, that golden tower is located in Los Angeles. In the real world, there's a very golden tower in New York uh, from which a lot of darkness is spilling. And it's, it's, it's kind of hard to not watch this film and see it as a much, much darker work than ever before. And again, and, and I've said this before, it's not, it's not that the film or pension or PTA were all that prescient. It's more that the time period that is being shown in the film up till now, not much has changed. And that's why there's that overlap is simply the inequalities and the ineptitude and the darkness and the wrongness presented as, as had existed in 1970 is really all not that different as in, and has indeed led to the very same things that we have here in 2020. And boy, we just took a turn, didn't we? We just took a turn. I just we saw both of our faces. We went to the dark place. We did. I, we were trying, we were doing so good. We start like right before we, when we were off air, we went dark really for, for like a second and then we pulled it back and here it comes again. Well, we're going to, we're going to pull out of that. We're going to pull out of that because, yeah, yeah. because film noir should be a funny and fun <laughs> and bright and convivial discussion. There should be no, no need for existentialism or despair in talking film noir, right? Well, I mean, one of the tricks he does, though, to um, leaven it, but also to to sort of set in time, the look of the movie is so golden and sun-kissed and Polaroid-y, and uh, um, there's something so honey about the way the film looks that I think is uh, weirdly, uh, there's like, it's sort of the, because, PTA is essentially a romantic, right? And that always is going, he's never abandoned hope in this other thing. And I think many elements in the story, but also the look of the films suggest that um, there's still hearts beating out there. (laughs) uh, So I, I, you know, I think obviously he uses humor to do that too, but, um, but mostly like Chandler, he uses Doc to, to be this, give us this kind of bulwark or ballast against the forces that are so dangerous. Exactly, and uh, he he mentioned in the pre- the um, the press tour for this film, and you know, noir came up obviously a lot, and in that very kind of inimitable PTA way, he tried to dismiss that, right? Oh no, noir, we weren't really thinking about film noir, no. He's like, you know, I was thinking about, like, I just wanted to make this more like a, a Neil Young song kind of sad, kind of sorrowful, but hopeful. You can still tap your toe to it. And that's what I thought of just now when you're like, no, there's 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 still heartbeats out there. 
this is it's 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 meant to be i think a film noir in as much as a film noir can still allow you to tap your toe and have a little bit of hope which i know is antithetical to the the dictionary definition but that's that's what i think also makes this film a little special is for all that darkness there is that that tug of lightness that that just he seems like he can't help himself with i always think of the final scene when doc smirks at the camera it feels like that's pta smirking at us like he's like i can't help it i know in the book doc's driving alone in this scene but i can't help it i have to put shasta in the car i have to yeah no that's right and that's um in some ways i think he's because chandler is you know more romantic than you know some people classify him as hard-boiled because there's i mean he's full sort of if hard-boiled restores order at the end of the book that's not really chandler but yeah. But I think, uh, you know, most noir heroes are very fallen and Marlowe, his detective hero, is not. He's the tarnished knight. When I think Doc is very much in, in that vein. And and I think, because correct me if I'm wrong, but in the book, Shasta is not the big, he's definitely intent, made her role in Doc's mental space and heart larger than in the book. Yeah, the the in the the book, she's just this kind of sinistral portal by which we get sucked into this once again a plot about LA land deals gone awry yeah, and no other LA story. <laughs> I mean, that's it's what it is. It's what we got. Uh, you know, we, what were we talking about before we went on air about about LA rent and things like that? Uh, but it's it's just she pulls us into this whirlpool of LA land use and abuse and. Uh, crooked booby hatches and um, a cabal of tax cheat dentists and cults and heroin and drug trade and the CIA and basically everything that went wrong with the American fate post 1968. And she's kind of just our our way of getting there. She's the in the book. She's very much more just the classic uh, hourglass shaped keyhole by which we go through and enter the mystery. And in the in the film, she's so much. She's still that, but there's she's all she's also something else and something something a little darker. And you know, I think you will know. I don't know. I'm going to tell you this because you know you wrote you literally wrote the book on it. Um, but you know, you've written as in, in, in about a lot of films noir, especially in the street was mine. That that these these films were this fearful reaction to the perceived diminishment of masculine potency in the 30s and the 40s and how noir as a genre became this vehicle for that. And if we can operate under the assumption that so many of the best films noir and neo-noir are about more than the crimes that crisscross their surfaces, I definitely feel like PTA is kind of hijacking the Shasta plot to say something about masculinity and about possessiveness and about the relationship between Doc and Shasta and I know we're getting heavy, but uh, there's something to that. And I, there's something to the, the fact that the doc in this story, this version of the story is so convinced that Shasta needs saving, that he is supposed, and I think that that's kind of interesting because we were talking earlier about that kind of dialectical relationship between the audience and the film. And I feel like doc is very much meant to feel like us and we're meant to feel like doc in that, the first time I think anyone's watching this movie, they're like, okay, oh yeah, yeah, the, the mystery is all about Shasta. The mystery is about Mickey Wolfman. 
And then half and right about at the scene that we're going to talk about later, both Doc and the audience are kind of bedeviled and shocked and confused to learn, oh, that's not the plot. That was never the plot, which then makes you start to, I think, interrogate Doc, as I think the film does in its own very kind of gentle, frisking, pat-down way. What is it about Doc that makes him think that Shasta is the primary mystery? And what is it that makes him think that she needed to be saved in the first place? Yeah, I think that's what makes us Doc when we watch it. Like, that's one of the great tricks of it, because he... So therefore we think she's, she's sort of the center of this. Uh, and, and then when he realizes that she's not, or is not the thing he's going to, you know, the scene we talk about is not the thing he's going to be able to do. That's, I mean, that's great because it's sort of, we're at that moment too. Well, then what are we going to do? <laughs> How can we, I mean, and that's also, I mean, this gets rather, in the weeds here if you'll excuse me but there's this is an inherent vice podcast get in the weeds get in the weeds <laughs> to me it seems like altman and pension want to do something much more radical with the detective hero i should say rather than noir keep it simple yeah and and actually i think that pta actually wants to bring it back closer to chandler uh exactly. because they really want to de-romanticize that, um, and for good reasons, the, they're the sort of, because there's, in my book about this, it's, I write about endlessly about how the books, those Chandler books, are very worried about gender. They're especially worried about masculinity, terrified of women. Masculinity is very fraught, but the movies based on them are, <laughs> little different and Bogart yeah. is very you know like he's he's like can't he doesn't get much more masculine than Bogart and Mitchum right and so yeah. it's, it's and they seem to be able to fix things that really can't be fixed and and Altman hates that and he you know he doesn't think that you know he's not a believer in the individual he's a believer in the collective and he wants to show Marlowe in the long goodbye is unable to affect any change to even you know even the even the most minor of um, making things right it becomes impossible and in fact he has been wrong about the woman when that movie is a man exactly. and the book is a man uh, he's been wrong about her all along and so I think Pynchon's more um in that mode too like he's not gonna let this night this night fantasy uh persist this is this doesn't work anymore and it never worked to begin with um and i think pta um is trying to like he's not going back to it necessarily though there is something a little conservative about it i suppose you could say but he is sort of figuring out maybe it's a compromise you know like maybe maybe this was a, a false illusion he had about shasta um you know maybe he never really knew her because you know what you made her up in your head she's just not a real person she's <laughs> not at all and that uh, but um what what does you know what does matter is there any hope for any authenticity in this fallen world and then he finds it in, a, in another place so i feel like it's sort of there's been this whole story since the long goodbye the book the altman's movie 
Inherent Vice the book, Inherent Vice the movie, where we've haven't gone back exactly to where we belong, but I feel like PTA's made an adjustment somehow. It and it feels it feels like a balanced adjustment yes, to me. I agree. Because you know, we were talking earlier that so often he'll present a film to us and we'll walk in going, oh, well, this is going to be his Scientology movie. It's clearly what this is. I've seen the trailers. I know what I'm getting into. You know, I, I remember at the time I was telling people, yeah, this is going to be like his There Will Be Blood, but for Scientology, not, a, not even realizing that his There Will Be Blood is not the There Will Be Blood that I initially <laughs> taught, took it. It's not, about, it's not about oil and American uh, capitalist lust. It's about... Now I look at it, it's about this father and his son and how, and how the, the space between them just cannot stop growing and the horror of that. So too, I feel like he's once again using our expectations and this time genre expectations, that of uh, the wayward hero and the lost woman. That's, that's, that's been a part of the detective story since, since the beginning, since before the beginning. Uh, yet in Vice, our hero is far more wayward than we've been trained to expect, and the woman is a lot less lost, at least in the way that Doc sees as something that he can rescue her from. And uh, indeed, as we said in the, sequence, in the sequence before this, I feel like Doc kind of faces a reckoning in which he realizes the woman he was searching for never needed to be found or saved, or at least not by him. That was never his job. She even says in the opening scene of uh, the film when he asks, you know, how do I get in touch with you? How do I find you? And she says, you don't. That, that, that's not why I came here. I came here about Mickey Wolfman. And she does everything possible to tell Doc that this story is not about her. And I think that's a fundamental difference between novel and film is while Doc is concerned about Shasta, he's also very kind of lackadaisical in the book. And he's, it's, it's, she's, she's just kind of just this wafting bit of smoke uh, that just kind of puffs into the room now and again because he, and he's always you know there's a scene where he's discovering in the book there's a very early version of the internet arpanet and you know he, he at first he's talking to a friend he's like well maybe we can find shasta on this thing this internet thing and then he immediately changes his mind and goes well can it tell us where to score like that's the doc of the book where it's like well shasta maybe but can 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 i can i get some weed first and you know <sighs> she tries to say in the film, this, this, this story, this movie is not about me. And he can't see that. And I think that the first time through, a lot of viewers can't see that either. Like Doc, this is not the story they expected. And so much of the film is constructed to make us feel like Doc, to be confused when he is. And I, again, I think that PTA uses those expectations against us. He knows that because we're like Doc, we're expecting there to be some grand shootout between him and Mickey Wolfman, in which he's going to pull Shasta from his arms and he's gonna say I came for you and she's gonna be like you did you came for me and that's perhaps why the scene that comes just before this one is so harrowing and disturbing for so many people because I view it as she's finally slapping him in the face with both hey this is the kind of person I am this is the kind of woman I am the kind of needs I have you need to think about the kind of needs you have and why you need me to be the girl in the country Joe and the fish t-shirt with no pants on that needs to be rescued and this, this is all my very big rambling discursive way of saying that I do feel like in a, in a way, uh, this film, as you said, is so much more like the Chandler adaptations of the 1940s and that it is such an interrogation rather than a pure adaptation of the ideas from the original text. And speaking of which, I'm guessing you did eventually get around to reading Inherent Vice? I haven't, but now I'm going oh. to. 
Yes. Oh my God. Uh, well then I'm, I mean, this is going to be a tricky question then before we slide into the scene, you are someone who has transposed one of your own novels, dare me to the screen. And thank you for doing so. Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, and I'm so without having seen or without having read the book, I think you're at least very aware of the, the kind of the coldness inherent, no pun intended, the coldness inherent to, to pinch on. Yes. And, you know, I've said this a billion times on the show. So everyone just put your earmuffs on for a second uh, if you're sick of hearing it. But, you know, what I think the, the primary difference between book and film is the book is very much pinch on's examination of the death of the counterculture and what led to that. And he uses a romantic relationship as a metaphor for that, the death of that. The book inverts that so, or the film inverts that so completely, where this is totally an examination of a man and a woman and uses the death of the counterculture as a metaphor for that. And I'm, I'm curious, as someone who has adapted their work to the screen, how do you view that, that transformation of Inherent Vice, the novel, to Inherent Vice, the film? Because what strikes me, and I'm probably totally wrong, but I, but I do think it is the mark of PTA's genius that it at least feels like this, is just how intuitive this film feels. It doesn't feel like it was a film that was roadmapped and precisely planned. It just feels like a bunch of scenes that feels right in your gut and in your heart. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think when you have a great filmmaker adapt something that they haven't written, someone who usually writes their own, it, I mean, even, well, he adapted Oil, but that's not really that. That's, I mean, that's, very, that's a loose yeah, yeah. adaptation yeah. of Oil. But I think if you have a great filmmaker adapting a great, you know, very esteemed great book, like you, you, you have to expect that they're going to do their thing to it. I, and I think that's the beauty of when those moments happen, because they're going to find things that you didn't see. Um, they're going to sort of knock it around and um, they're going to come up with something. I mean, what's the point of doing it if it's just going to be a straight adaptation? There's no point. There's no point to it at all. And so inevitably, you know, the romantic in PTA is going to see that Chasta uh, as like the, the key to it. I mean, he always sees uh, thwarted love as the key to most of his characters, right? They, you yeah. know, thwarted love or lost love, the love of a parent that's gone, a, a like it's always in there. And so he found it in the book because that's the way he reads the book. And uh, so, I mean, I think that's the beauty of of those great coming together. I mean, I don't, I mean, I, I think Pynchon liked it though, as much as we've heard, right? As much as, yeah, I mean. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, we'll find out, he's gonna be on the next episode. Um, so we'll, we'll ask him, <laughs> that, don't, don't, don't worry, I'll ask. I, I, I got a list of questions. Um, but before we watch the scene proper, I, I do wanna know this, what is this film to you? It's a big ask, that's a big question, I know. But would you even, do you even call this a film noir or a neo-noir? Because I know, I know, I know, it's got a sort of hope, kind of hopeful ending, which precludes technically most noir. Is it a detective film? I keep calling it soft-boiled noir. I've called it a postcard film. Is it a romance, a comedy? I think I would put it under neo-noir. The neo-noir I like, I mean, there's, a, there's some movies that people call neo-noir that are just like pastiche noir, mm -hmm. updated noir. Those are not good. The, you know, the Venetian blinds and the, you know, <laughs> uh, you know I think, you know, neo-noir to me is something that's doing something with. Yeah. There's, they're not just 
taking that story from the past and putting it in the present or taking it, they're doing something with it, like the Coen brothers, obviously, or like um, um, Stephen Frears, The Grifter is one of my favorites. Oh. And so it's an incredible movie. So I think that, that, that I would put it, yeah, that's where I would put it. Um, but now I think of it's funny. I'm thinking even as we're talking because I keep and this will was a good lead into where listen to the scene is I just keep thinking about the different way the different meaning of inherent vice in the book uh, versus the movie because and then I the what I thought it meant to the movie at the beginning of our conversation has now changed. <laughs> so, so. Okay, well that's a perfect lead into this scene. Yeah. And I'm going to remember to ask you what the hell exactly it is that yeah. you're talking about when yeah. we come right back. Inherent vice in a marine insurance policy is anything that you can't avoid. Eggs break, chocolate melts, glass shatters. And Doc wondered what that meant when it applied to ex-old ladies. What's on your mind, Doc? Besides the usual. I'm like, you know, working my soul into a brain freeze here, Leash. Well, put it another way. What's gonna nag at you in the middle of the night? Kid blues, saxophone players. You know, whatever they meant to do, Coy, you know, mistakes aside. You know, nobody deserves to go through life without seeing their daughter. I don't sit well with me. Go get him. Oh, so fair warning, fair warning to everyone, including including my beloved guest here. I am going to start bawling like a baby at some point. Uh, if anyone uh, is out there who has listened to every episode, uh, you know, or any episode really, because I think I mention it every single time. If there is something that gets me about the detective movie. It's not so much the Hammett story, the, the guy who comes in, sees something wrong, burns everything to the ground, cowboy style, turns around, lights a cigarette, and walks back out, having asserted his kind of vision of justice in the world. I love those stories, but that's not what grabs me. The stories that grab me are the ones where we have this guy kind of at the lowest point of his life, or a girl at the lowest point of her life, who is presented with a possibility. And there's a line from a John McDonald movie, or excuse me, John McDonald novel, One Fearful Yellow Eye, that I always think about. 
In many ways, life is less random than we think. In your past and mine, there have been times when we have, on some lonely trail, constructed a device aimed into our future. Perhaps, no, perhaps nothing ever comes of, along to trigger it. We live safe through the years. But for some people, something moves on the half-forgotten path and something arches out of the past and explodes into the here and the now. And it gives our character, our hero, an opportunity to do one good thing. Capital O, capital G, capital T, one good thing. And, and, and that Chandler-esque idea of the more minor the thing, the somehow the more romantic, the more willing our hero is to risk everything for something that is almost inconsequential on, on any other metric, that, that gets me. And it moves me to, to places where, like I said, I will start blubbering like a baby when I think about it too much. Uh, because I think, as we were talking at the top of this episode, you know, one of the things that PTA does so well is he articulates these things that maybe we feel, but we don't quite have the right words for it. And I do think that that feeling, that, that need for it all to have meant something, for this, this silly life that we live to have meant something, and to be able to point at something, almost like a receipt, and say, I did this, and it was good, and I helped, and I mattered. I mean, what's better than that? What's better than that? And that's why this sequence is my favorite in the film, because I feel like this is the moment where Doc sees that for himself and realizes what it is. I think it's a little cataclysmic for him because I think it's a bit it's a bit jarring because I think he did not think that this was going to be the thing. I, he had something else on his mind that was going to save him, and that was his, I think, somewhat toxic view of who Shasta was in his life, and thus what she needed. And as we roll into this scene, I say all of that to again warn you all that I'm going to get heavy and I'm going to get emotional. But before before we do that, before we do that, I want to ask Megan. What do you mean when you say Inherent Vice has changed for you over the course of this episode? Well, I thought, and I did look it up in Maritime Law, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> As one does. Yes. Um, but I, you know how Chest actually says, I was in, they told me I was Inherent Vice, right? Mm -hmm. that, that you can't insure her because the, the goods, they're, they're damaged from the start, right? Yeah. They're something, or... Their intrinsic make their intrinsic makeup will make them decay. That's right. Like eggs will crack, right? It's just like the uh yeah. So I thought and it so I have to admit it troubled me a bit that it felt like the movie was saying here that he's she's not worth he's realizing she's not worth it. She's damaged goods. I'm gonna do this other thing instead. But now, I think that the inherent vice is their relationship. Yeah, they're yeah, each exactly. bad for each other. And what you said made that made that crystallize for me. It's like they are not meant to work together. They hurt each other. They have impossible, you know, impossibly different ideas of the world and what they want. And they and she knows it long before he does, and he's finally getting it here. And so he's he's got to pivot um, <laughs> very quickly um, uh, to to do that. So that that makes me feel better about um, about you know the sort of movie's view of Shasta. 
Yeah, because you, I think I, and not just because you're agreeing with me, I think you are so right. I think you are so right. I think because, you know, you know, Sora Liege even says in the, the little, the very gorgeous, uh, uh, sun splashed sequence that, that kind of prologues are seen here, you know, uh, inherent vice in maritime insurance policies, anything you can't, it's anything you can't avoid. Eggs break, chocolate melts, glass shatters, and Doc wondered what that meant when applied to ex-old ladies. And I, I agree, I think what is being said here is it's easy to, it's, it's, it's easy, I think, to, to go the first way that you mentioned when Shasta says, well, they told me I couldn't be insured because of inherent vice. But you gotta remember who's telling her this, which is a, a cabal of misogynist, uh, <laughs> uh, heroin, uh, heroin peddling tax cheat dentists and uh, capitalist uh, monsters. But I, I, I think you're right in that ultimately the term inherent vice, I think for Pinchon, it was the 1960s in the counterculture that there was something inherently baked into this doom that also doomed it towards failure, towards entropy and towards ending. But I think for PTA, it's simply about this couple who loves each other. I think Shasta loves Doc. I think Doc loves Shasta. I think much like Master and Freddie Quell, they want to be together. But like Freddie Quell says, maybe in the next life, that there that there is an inherent flaw in 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 both of these people. And when you when they come together, it's it's a little bit of magic, but it's also a whole lot of mess. And that is so much, I think, what Shasta is trying to say to him in that scene when he, when she's like, "What kind of girl do you need, Doc? Don't you kind of want one of those Manson girls that maybe you can tell what to do, and maybe is doesn't want to be used and abused." by uh or what, what does she call it be the bought and sold whore of uh some real estate mogul and there's part of shasta that seems attracted to that kind of degradation and i think she's really trying to show doc this is what i want this is who i am you need to see this and see i'm it's not that uh it's not that i'm bad it's that you're bad for me and i'm bad for you and i i say all of that not to regress into the prior episode but because i think that that is like the booster rocket that drives yes. this moment. This uh, that begins with Doc and Shasta on the beach. It's so idyllic. Is it a dream or a memory or is it simply the morning after? It is such a jolt to come from that harrowing sex scene, and then cut to the cold breakfast nook of Doc's bungalow as he's staring forlornly at this po postcard that she sent him. But I think it's for him the moment where he realizes, and I think it takes the audience a couple of viewings to catch up to Doc, but he's, I think, you see that look of horror and he's crying in his face and I, his, his tears are running down his cheeks. And I think he's realizing, my God, I was so wrong. This thing that I thought was gonna save me, this woman that I thought was gonna save me by me saving her, this, this was never the job. This was never, ever the goddamn job. And the good thing was, was right here in front of me this whole time, which, Again, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna sing its praises. Your novel, the song is you. This is one of the like one of the reasons I'm not gonna get into super spoilery territory, but I feel like there is a character who has a somewhat adjacent epiphanal moment where it is realized what is truly good and what is truly needed versus a self-image of what of what a good guy is, what a hero can be. And that's 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 really why this scene means the most to me because this is the moment where Doc wakes up. Yeah, yeah, and it's 
it is very Chandler Marlowe-esque because so yeah, much, so many of the Marlowe novels end with him restoring, you know, oh, the high window, they bring the girl back to Kansas or wherever she's <laughs> from. And he's, and he, you know, he's often tainted by the process, but even tainted families, he tries to keep intact. And there's, you know, there's this, and then often in his books, it's the one shabby man who did the good thing for him, who he wants to honor. There's, yeah. you know, the those notes are always in there. And what I love about this scene is that you really see him thinking in the way that it reminds me of Bogart playing Marlowe. It's very hard to show thinking yeah. on screen. And you really do, you know, it's amazing how quick it is, but how much is in there. His whole, his whole, but, you know, the bottom has fallen out and he's trying to figure out, you know, what, what matters and really decide. And uh, it's so powerful. It's also a doc we have not seen at yeah. all. I mean, we're, we're getting two docs we haven't seen before. I, I, I think that the scene previous, the sex scene, it's a very different doc than the one we imagined we would be knocking about with for two hours and 40 minutes of this or two hours and 30 minutes of this film. But I also, what, what, what jars me so much about the doc that we see here is he's not high. He's not being a goofball. He's not getting conked on the head and doing the Daffy Dunk punch. He's not making fun of Bigfoot. He's just, he's a human being. He's no longer a caricature here. He is a real flesh and blood man who has walked out of a, a very real harrowing neo-noir story that's looking around and saying, Jesus Christ. And the raw humanity and empathy that seems and binds his face and holds these eyes wet with tears. It is my favorite Joaquin Phoenix moment in this film. It is his most human moment. I think it is one of the film's most human moments. And again, yeah, you're right. It's, it's that Chandler-esque idea of something wrong has happened. And not only has it happened, but it's happened on Doc's watch and it's gotten worse on his watch because he was chasing after something else. And it's that, it's that moment of realization that that he in some way has tacitly allowed this to continue, even if even slightly, because throughout the film, throughout the film, Bigfoot keeps calling saying, have you, have you looked into this Koi Harlingen thing? Have you checked on this yet? And he's like, nah, you know, I was up doing like, he only keeps bumping into Koi by happenstance and accident while trying to figure out if the thing has Shasta. And yeah, I'm, oh, whew, I'm gonna fan my face a little bit here, Megan. I'm gonna fan my face a little bit here. But the fact that it all comes down to, you know, that perfect question uh, that sort of leads yes, put it another way, uh, you know, what's what's going to nag at you in the middle of the night? And that one tear, and he just says, little kid blues and saxophone players. That That is as close to a, ch a pure Chandler adaptation. It's It's literally 30 seconds, but that to me is, you know, I, I, I do try to avoid making too many explicit connections between the long goodbye and inherent vice just because, yes, they're obviously there. It's, it's, it's like going, hey, did you ever notice Boogie Nights has a little bit of Scorsese in there? Yeah. Did anybody catch that? Um, but I do think that this right here is the moment, the purest Chandler moment, and that, that PTA really goes for it. And, I, and I, 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 I genuinely believe, I think it's the most beautiful moment in the entire film. Uh, even more beautiful when the family is actually rescued because it's that moment of epiphany where this character is both realizing they were wrong and being willing to move towards goodness regardless of what it's going to take. And that to me, that's, 
that's the ultimate detective story to me. And the fact that it's so small, it's, it's a, it's two junky parents and a kid who's going to get the little kid blues anyway. But as docs, the idea that, you know what, if I can prevent this for a few more years, those little kid blues, maybe that's worth everything. And it's, it, you're right, it's so Chandler-esque, every part about that, but in particular, he, you know, he always values the loyal woman. Um, and so that, you know, I think especially amidst sort of seeing this relationship, he thought he was having the shot <laughs> sort of burned yeah. down. So I think there's this, uh, um, this sense that this is, you know, they want to be together. They've been torn apart by circumstances beyond their control while trying to make their lives right, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. um, and and there is a little bit of, like there is in Chandler, you know, Marlo's very afraid of domesticity, but he very much valorizes it for other people. <laughs> and I think there's yeah. that, that, like Doc doesn't want to, you know, be, you know, even with Shasta, I think he's not imagining a world where they would be like popping kids out in the burn. Oh my God, that's so scary. <laughs> that's almost hope and coy level scary when Doc screams at the picture, like to imagine these two yeah, raising I a know. kid. Oh my um, God. But, but you know, it's made me think that, that I was, I went and looked at that part in the book and there's an interesting change. Um, well, oh, also I looked at it in the screenplay, the, the published screenplay. Yeah. And that's very different. So he yeah. has that whole conversation with the Buffalo Nickel instead of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and thank God that PTA decided to switch some things <laughs> yeah. up on the fly. better this way. But, um, in the in the so in the movie right he's talking about coy like whatever however he screwed up right no one deserves to go through life without seeing their dog so it's very focused on coy but then i looked at it in the book and in the book it's uh doc says it wasn't so much coy he kept cycling back to as hope the wife and mother who believed with no proof that her husband hadn't died and amethyst the child who ought to have something more than baiting polaroids to go to go to when she got them little kid blues and <sighs> i think that's an interesting change you know that the pta is is choosing that connection like his in some way in some way doc's identification with coy or the person he could have been is more intense than pension who's imagining this this family that deserves better yeah that's that had not occurred to me and now my mind is blown and so i'm going to stammer for a moment as i digest this because i think you're right and i think that but and i think that's that is kind of in keeping with again i don't even know if this is the proper usage of the word but that kind of those dialectical layers that are in uh, so many of PTA's films where it's a weird, it's not quite solipsism, but this idea that every character is a mirror of our lead in some way. And especially in Inherent Vice, where I feel like everyone in Inherent Vice is suffering from the same sorrow as Doc. They have something, there is a hole within them. Sometimes that hole is person-shaped. Sometimes, sometimes it is artesia-shaped. Uh, sometimes it is uh, capitalism itself. So there's someone like Mickey simply lamenting the years that he gave away to, to being a capitalist monster when I realized it should have all been for free. The, everyone is missing something. And everyone in this story feels like a funhouse mirrored version of him. And so I think it is 
definitely, definitely, definitely in PTA's wheelhouse for him to look at Koi and see and realize, oh, he's the same as I am. He's, he's missing something. He's, and he's made mistakes. Just like I think in this moment, Doc is realizing how crucial a capital L life mistake he has made in his, in his professional PI pursuit of Shasta. And I think he, because he even says, you know, he, you know, whatever, whatever he meant to do, Koi, mistakes aside, because, you know, Koi is one of those things that is almost unforgivable in Doc's world. Koi's a snitch and Koi's working for the man. But he recognizes, you know, he meant well. He meant well and he thought he was doing right by the people he loved. And he was blinded by that. And so, yes, he fucked up. But does he deserve to go his whole life without seeing his daughter? That don't sit well with me. And, and he does care about Amethyst to the degree that that line so haunts him. Because it's the first thing he says when he whispers when that tear goes. He goes, just look at Lewis. Like the idea that someone would have that because Doc failed to act. The fact that that haunts him and the fact that that drives him. Yeah. That is, yeah, that's such a powerful idea. I think it is. And I think you're really right about it being maybe, I was wondering about the choice and about why focusing more on Koi there. And I hadn't come to a conclusion, but the identification, because he too is a shapeshifter, right? That's what the detective does. Yeah. Um, that's like the classic, that's PI, PI traditions entirely based on <laughs> they don't belong anywhere. And they yeah. have to be, and so Koi has had, is, does that. That's what he does, right? He's used to infiltrate places. And he's obviously, um, in many ways, the opposite as the snitch, but but um, his his has a noble cause at the root of it. So I think you're right. I think that's why those scenes between Doc and Coy have it has, it has a feel much like Terry Lennox and Belong uh, that ends very differently. They're so <laughs> intimate so quickly, yeah. and it feel you feel like they've known each other forever, and yeah. that's also like a really great own. Wilson, uh, you know their their chemistry there, as if they it's almost because um, they're very whispery too. They're always whispering to each he, other. Uh, Koi, or excuse me, Owen never speaks above a whisper yeah. in the entire film. There's these hushed, almost holy tones that I think comes a little bit with this kind of I don't know the right this kind of soul struck recognition between yeah. these two men. That and and notice that when Doc talks to Koi, he he more or less is ex he's extraordinarily muted for for Doc, who's a pretty laid back guy. But is these hushed tones and the things that they communicate to each other too are so both personal and vast. Like the the conversation at the, the Topanga House about America being someone's strung out mother in need of rescue. I know that 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 felt very timely. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> But it's making me think too of a moment that puzzled me. You know when he sees him in that cult compound? Chris Kylon, yeah. Yeah, he sees him. Uh, what I thought was so interesting about that moment, and I couldn't figure out why it had been done that way, is it's all Doc's POV, but but we actually see Koi see him first. Yeah. And that is like a weird thing to do. Uh, and it's very much not like how the whole movie operates, where, where Doc keeps seeing these things and yeah. wanting, you know, <laughs> the big. Uh, so it does suggest to me they're kind of doubling. Between There's an overlap. Yeah. yeah. And you are exactly right. That, that sequence, it's even, it even appears that like the camera lenses have shifted. There's a strange focus that does not. It, 
it is, it's like, it's like this veneer of superficiality almost. It doesn't, it's so, it's, I feel like it's designed to feel so jarring. And I think it is because we are, the, the vocabulary is changing. And for the first time in the film, it, as you said, it's like, we are looking at Doc through someone else's eyes, which only other, the only time that happens again is I think in the, in the sex scene where we are seeing Shasta's very objective and probably far more accurate examination and viewpoint of Doc than the self-view that we get of him as, as just this kind of affable cartoon character. And yeah, I, I, I think you, you, are, you are so right. I think that Koi is kind of his mirror. And I do, I think, I think that is why, I think that is why Doc is able to go from that moment when he is on, he's sitting on the floor and Penny Kimball is on the couch behind him getting high. And the moment he realizes that Koi is a snitch, he's like, you fuckers, God. And he, it's, it, there's a deadness in it for the first time in the film because Doc's a pretty empathetic guy coming from, as, a, as a filtered creation I feel like, you know, or adaptation of PTA, who is the patron saint of cinematic empathy after Jonathan Demme. It's one of the rare moments where Doc has zero empathy for a character. This is, a, this is one line you cannot transgress, you cannot trespass. And the fact that Doc is able to go from that moment to this moment here where he's crying and just saying, this don't sit well with me, which is also one of the few times that Doc issues an actual moral ethos in the entire film. Because usually he's kind of just live as let live. You, you know, if you want to come have sex with him, doesn't matter that he's already dating Penny Kemble. Uh, if you want to give him, you know, cocaine, weed, whatever, sure. It doesn't matter if he's on the clock. Uh, but this is one moment where he does define an actual moral code and says whatever this man did whatever whatever he tried to do keeping him from his daughter is just wrong it's just not right and if i gotta die i have to die but like i can't live knowing that this happened and i spent all my time crushing on a girl why well and maybe it's the same thing though maybe the maybe he's trying to do both things at once like because now that you're saying now we're talking about doc and koi being doubles but maybe they're couple doubles because they're both junkie couples to a certain one much worse junkies than the other and the notion that one that, the, that there still seems to be that there was sacrifice on both sides because they loved each other so much yeah. whereas in the case of doc and and shasta that's not you know that's not even at play and that they were never able to produce a child or to envision any kind of future so like maybe by restoring that couple and rendering it a family it's a way of of uh again that that has you know making it right with himself with shasta which is maybe why we get rewarded by having her appear real or not at the end i'm just gonna keep saying that you're right i'm gonna keep saying that you're right i'm gonna keep doing it because i don't i don't disagree it's like that there's that great story uh you know the movie cockfighter with warren oates and harry dean stanton and this is the most pointless uh uh digression possible i'm gonna say it really quick uh, Harry Dean Stanton was freaking out in the middle of a scene and he couldn't get it right. He broke down in tears and he walked off set and Warren Oates followed him. He said, Harry Dean, what's wrong? What's the problem? He said, Warren, I just don't have it. I don't have it. I don't understand it. I don't understand the character. And Warren just patted him on the back and he said, Harry Dean, everything you do is right. Don't you know that? Don't you know that? So you are so right here. And I, and I, and I agree. I think that um, if it's as if the, the, the little prologue sequence that we have 
in our scene today of them walking on the beach, this idyllic moment. Doc is walking backwards. He's being cute. Uh, Shasta is smiling and laughing at all his gags and stunts. It's, like, it, it's almost like that scene shows us what could have been, but is not and cannot. And uh, he, in this moment, turns his back on that, turns his back on the fantasy. And instead of being lost in a drift in the riptides of memory and carried out to sea by the, 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 these mirages of a better place um, and of a better time, I, I think that there is something to the idea of, well, if, if, to use your, I love that term, the couple doubles, the double couples. Uh, if he can just put this couple together, that counts. And maybe, maybe he does it because he thinks something as far-fetched as karmically, because you know, there, karma is a huge, I think, idea and force in, the, in this film's universe. Maybe that, that buys him something good down the road. But I, actually, I, know, I don't think that he would even be thinking something that self-interested. I think he just thinks, if I can't put us together, but I can reunite this. In both the film and the novel, this is a universe in which things are falling apart. The inherent vice of all things tears them apart. And so what could possibly be a more noble and meaningful act than to take one American family and just put them back together, this one family? And it's not going to stop the golden thing, and it's not going to stop the, uh, the war that is funneling heroin out of Southeast Asia. It's not going to stop Reaganomics. It's not going to stop the AIDS crisis. It's not going to stop the ascendancy of Donald Trump. It's not going to affect any of these things, which is, which is I kind of love about the film is, we don't even find out if there's someone at the top of the fang. There's no confrontation uh, with a big bad or anything like that. It's just, well, maybe this one family can be okay. And if I can unify that, if that's the best I can do, that still kind of counts in this world. And I think it's even bigger because it suggests that that can happen, which feels yeah. far more uh, big uh, an achievement. And because... I believe in the book, he does not like deliver Koi directly to the house. You just, I think she just call Hope calls him or something. Yeah, it's, yeah. But like he, like we, he, I mean, PTA wants to show him actually <laughs> doing it and like this is going, you know, which is very Chandler-esque too. Like you're going to make me cry. <laughs> it's very moving and and I think we're meant to be moved and and that that's actually not a small thing it's everything because, yeah. you know you're never going to be able to fight all these forces of, of greed and finality and uh you know but 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 you know this this is alive and real and can be alive and real and others and even a guy like me can value it and uh <laughs> and actually make something happen, which is very, is something that, you know, Altman resists the belief that, that, the, that the detective hero can ever make anything happen. Um, yeah. And I, so there's something, I mean, I have a complicated relationship with that movie uh, because of that, but, because uh, he defeats my romanticism. But, oh, um, yeah, yeah. I'm really doubly glad for PTA. I mean, I love I love Altman's movie, but um, it's it's a little more rancid at the heart than uh, <laughs> than I am. And, and I love that PTA in some way, even though you're not really sure how much of it is real at that end, which I can't wait to hear you talk about the last scene. But 
um, and this is a little very ambiguous in a number of ways um, with Shasta, like this, this we are left to believe that he has, one bow has been knitted up and then Amethyst will have both her parents and, and Croy will get to be a dad and, um, and that's, you know, restoration of some kind of family and PTA never cares if it's a traditional family. Some, it's always, in fact, mostly it's not, but some yeah. kind of family uh, can protect one another. And that's all that matters. That's, yeah. that's like you said, I do like how you said when you kind of countered me, you're like, well, it actually kind of isn't a small thing. It kind of, that is everything. And you're right. Maybe it is. And especially because it's, it's, it's Doc's one duty. It's the one thing he's, he's been, this is his, you know, there's, they have some variation when he drops Koi off of when Koi's like, you know, there's that ancient Native American thing where if you save someone's life, you respond. And Doc, you know, he cuts him off. He's like, ah, oh, some hippie said that, man, you saved your own life. But that's not, that's just Doc being self-deprecating. That's not true. Doc in discharging his duty in literally risking his life, not to save anyone's life. That's the other thing. He's not risking his life to rescue anyone. He's, he is risking his own existence so that a, a little girl will not grow up sad or sadder yeah. than this world allows. That, I'm gonna fan my face again. Um, that is everything. And especially in a world this weary, both the world of the film and the one that you and I are sitting in right now, that someone would both have the ability and the clarity, <laughs> however pot fogged, to recognize how wrong they were, but then recognize how right they could be and not for their own self-interest, but simply because that just is, is right. It's right for rightness's sake in a world this complicated to be able to recognize something that isn't ambiguous that no, this is just the good thing. This is the one good thing I can do. That's maybe, maybe that's worth me dying for. Maybe it's worth me risking everything for because anything else less than that, it's going to be almost inherently wrong. It's going to be inherent vice itself. It's going to be something destined to decay. This won't decay. This will last. And that's, boy, that's magic. That's magic, Megan. Isn't that magic? It, it is. I mean, it, and it's so beautiful that it's such a non-traditional family. Now that I think about it, you got that, you have a child who they have sort of, by their own bad behavior, have brought into the world a compromise, right? Yeah. But, um, but they have committed themselves and are trying to be better people and have cleaned up and are doing all these good things. And, and, I'm, and, and that's, I think, also the part that touches Doc so much and penetrates that fog or that haze that is, that is Shasta, that is sort of, you know, the sort of sense of decay around him, the sense of fallenness. It's, uh, it's really, it's really so promising in our moment. We need to all be fine. We all need to be getting coy and hope and amethyst back together. Out we there. do. We all need our we all need our coy Harlingen moment, don't we? We do. We yeah. do. And for as sad as he is at times, I think Doc's very lucky that he. I think it's very lucky in this life to be able to realize your moment when it's happening and be able to act upon it. That's that's the other thing is, so many I think we we miss that moment until it's it's far in the rear view and then it's a little too late but yeah in a schrader movie he would <laughs> <laughs> oh my god in a i can't even the, the self the last 10 minutes <laughs> oh my god the flagellation that would come in the final 10 minutes of of a shirt can you imagine a schrader 
Oh my, Megan, we were on such a happy trail. Now all I'm thinking of is like the Paul Schrader version of Inherent Vice. Doc just sitting in a room with a cat of nine tails, whipping the flesh off his back because he screwed it up, sending the pieces to to an uh, aging amethyst who's now in therapy or something like that. That would be the uh, name amethyst, like it's a gem, and it's you could say that it's a you know that that damaged child to you know air quotes is uh, inherent vice, but no, she's a gem, she's amethyst, and we're gonna we're You're gonna right. make. If, it, if there's one thing in the sorry world, Inherent Vice is not going to touch. It's little Amethyst Harlingen. She's, God damn it, Amethyst Harlingen's going to be okay. And that's, that is, that's capital E everything. That's what matters. Oh, boy. Whew. I'm going to have to get the Kleenex out after this thing. Thank you, Megan. I have to say, this has been so, so, so much fun to talk to you about Inherent Vice to talk to you about film noir in general, to talk to you about hard-boiled fiction. You are by far one of my all-time favorite writers on all of those subjects and more. And so be, to be able to share this time with you has has been a genuine, genuine pleasure and an honor on my part. And I so thank you for coming on and well, talking to me about this wacky little- Utterly thrilling and as like, <laughs> led to revelations and epiphanies of which the likes uh, I have not seen in some time. And also the other best part of that thing is like, we should have spoken and met somehow before, but now we are brought, we're brought together. Cause obviously- you, you say that now, but when you get the 4 a.m. phone call of me going, <laughs> man, isn't it just so sad? I mean, he's sitting in the car by himself and Shasta's not with him, but he, I guess he drops Koi off. <laughs> You're going to regret it. You're going to regret it. Well, we're all got the dock inside. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying, Abbott, it's coming. The reckoning's coming. Brace I'm yourself. ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> I, again, I have to say, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for the words and the writing and everything that you do. Uh, is there anything, anywhere you would like to steer people to see your work? Oh my God, no. <laughs> yeah. no wow, I, you're the first person that just said, oh no, no, God, no. I mean, I have a website. I'm, I'm easily found on Twitter and uh, <laughs> pretty easily on Instagram. And I love to post strange pictures of trash. So I say find me there. <laughs> I, my books are everywhere. My show is on USA and, and it'll be on Netflix uh, soon. Um, but. Um, you know, I'm so happy to do this. I cannot tell you. So it was a true honor. Likewise, likewise. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for joining us today. And please join me next time where myself and a very special guest are going to pay one last visit to Deputy DA Penny Kimball. Okay, it's official. We're getting Megan to host the show from here on out. Travis, you're out. Megan, you're in. That was just too good. In the meantime, be sure to check out Megan's incredible body of work. They're the kind of books you take with you in your head and your heart. The very same places we let the story of this wayward stoner P.I. live and breathe. Where will Doc carry his story, though? Where will it take him? And us. We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.